So, welcome back to our third week in this series based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. This wonderful letter is going to teach us how to experience joy through tough times. And we're going to be focusing on Philippians chapter 3 today. The title of the message is Learning How to Live a Life of Loss. And during week one, we covered chapter one in this letter where Paul urges us to live as if God is in control. During the second week, we look to chapter two where Jesus, our Lord, is presented as a perfect example for behavior in times of great difficulty and persecution. After all, he is our model for everything, including when we're going through tough times. Both messages are available on the podcast if you miss them, and I'd strongly encourage you, especially the people here, we're all end-time believers, to go and listen to those messages when you can't be here on Sunday morning, because you need that truth, you need that encouragement to feed your soul on a weekly basis, and hopefully you're um, reading your Bibles on a daily basis to keep your spirit and your soul in good health. So now in week three of this series, we're going to look at Philippians chapter three. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, so I've been really looking forward to bringing this to you. And we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is also a model for us in learning what it means to endure hardship. So as we get into our message this morning, let's just take a moment and add God's blessing upon it. Father God, we thank you. And we ask, Lord, that as we read Philippians chapter 3 today, as we go through it, as we mine the depths and the truth that we see in this important part of Scripture, that you would take it, bless it, send it forth, and let it accomplish the purpose for which you are sending it. I ask, Father, that our hearts and minds be changed this morning to reflect the glory of your Son in everything we do. I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, whenever a pastor stands up here and talks about suffering and hardship, it's people almost want to kind of close that down in our minds. Suffering and hardship is something that in our American culture is not something that's talked about a lot, not something that's definitely not, it's definitely not promoted as something that we should look forward to or or want in our life, but it should come as no surprise to us. After all, the Bible is full of examples of people who have gone through tremendous amounts of suffering. After all, one of the longest prophetic books in the Bible, Jeremiah, is all about a man and a prophet that was called the weeping prophet because he went through so much suffering. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations of him crying out to God because of the suffering of of himself and the nation of Israel. He was known as the weeping prophet. Perhaps we cannot explain the meaning of suffering on a philosophical level, but we can go through hard times in a very Christ-like manner if we yield to him. Some verses that we can consider. Jesus said, if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. And that is found in John 15, 20. The Apostle Peter, in another part of the Bible, said, Don't be surprised as if some strange thing were happening to you when you encounter hardships. He says that in 1 Peter 4.12. In another context, Paul himself encouraged new believers with these words, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, in Acts 14.22. 
In fact, one of the last messages that is given to us by the Apostle Paul is found in 2 Timothy, the last of his letters. And he reminds us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. So today, as we look at the third chapter of Philippians, we'll discover that Paul offers himself as an example of people who go through hard times. Very near the end of this chapter, in verse 17, he says, Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And when you read through the New Testament, when you read the Pauline letters, you'll find this exhortation is very, very common. It's used very frequently by them. He often offers his own life as a personal example. And the Church of the Philippians had a unique perspective in understanding how Paul endured suffering. The book of Acts records that in the very first days after Paul arrived in the city of Philippi, he was thrown into prison. If you remember from Acts chapter 16, God responds to Paul's praises while he was in prison by supernaturally breaking him out of the jail. Paul and Silas, they, they were whipped, they were flogged, they were beaten, and then they were thrown and chained to a wall in a very dark, very cold, very uncomfortable prison. And instead of moaning and groaning, they were singing praise to God. I once heard a pastor say that, that Paul was a tenor and, and Silas was a baritone and God sung bass and the, and the whole wall shook and the chains fell off and they were set free from the jail. Amen. In fact, they said that as their chains fell off that the prison warden heard about this. And if a prison warden in, in that time lost a prisoner, they were crucified for that. So the prison warden grabs his sword. He's going to kill himself because he doesn't want to be crucified. So he's going to kill himself. And Paul hears about it. He said, wait, don't harm yourself. We're still here. Not a single person has left. He said, this was God setting us free. And the warden gets saved because of this and comes and tends upon the wounds that he afflicted. And Paul preaches to them the gospel and that prison warden was saved and baptized into the Christian faith. The very man that beat them a few hours before, they got to lead to the Lord. Paul's example, this was his example of he was planting the church in Philippi, and it's very instructive to us in two ways. First, there is frequently a connection between fruitful ministry and difficult days. They're usually connected that the most ministry will come out of difficult times. We talked about this last Wednesday during our Bible study that about the great falling away predicted in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says that before the Antichrist comes and is revealed that there'll be a great falling away of the church away from the gospel. And these prophetic warnings are in the Bible to tell us that no matter what, even if everything looked dark and hard times are coming, that we are still to be about the Master's work. 
We are still to be looking up and crying out to Jesus, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Not only come quickly to, to get us out of here and bring us to heaven, but we cry, Maranatha, God, God, Jesus, come quickly into the hearts of other people so that they can be saved as well. Second, the world is watching us as followers of Jesus endure tough times. They're looking at us and they're, at, they're, they're saying, okay, their churches are shrinking. Okay, the, the money's not there. Okay, pastors aren't going to be paid. You know, how are they going to react to this? Are they going to kick and are they going to scream? Are they going to complain? Or are they going to actually live the message they've been preaching all these years? Our actions authenticate our message, don't they? Perhaps you've never been thrown in jail for your testimony of Christ. Perhaps you've never been beaten because you were a follower of Jesus. But difficult days come in many different forms. There are plenty of believers who have suffered the loss of family members and family relationships because of their beliefs. There are plenty of believers who have been passed over for promotions at work because they put their faith first and their job second. There are plenty of believers who make choices involving personal loss in order to remain faithful to Jesus their Lord and his mission for their lives. Maybe you're one of those believers. Or if you have not faced difficult days, let me encourage you as Paul and Barnabas encouraged the first church they planted. They said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The question is not whether we will face hardship or suffering. That's a certainty. We're going to face hardship and suffering. The only question is when and how we face that suffering. When you first became a follower of Jesus, did anyone share with you that you were signing up for difficult days? That's usually not the way that we, we tell people about Jesus. But maybe we should. In fact, trouble and persecution are part of the good news. They're part of the gospel message. After all, trouble and persecution were part of Jesus' life. Why should his followers be any different? I won't deceive you by telling you that your life will always be easier as a follower of Jesus. In fact, often the more sincere we are to follow Jesus, the more suffering and loss we will endure. But there is good news at the end. We're heading for a joy unspeakable that's full of glory. I've read the book, Jesus Wins, So We Win. So today we're going to look through chapter 3 of this marvelous letter. As I said, this, this, this chapter 3 is one of my favorite in the entire Bible. And I'd like to give you just five quick points to help you understand how Paul is also an example to us who are facing difficulties and trials. So let's look at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, meaning the Jews, 
We who are the circumcision, who, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus, Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. I want you to look at verse 2 there when he's talking about watch out for those dogs. He's talking about people who preach a false gospel. Now, false gospels come in very many forms. In Paul's day, the false gospel that he was dealing with was the Jewish people saying that you have to become a Jew first, which means you have to go through all the ceremonies, learn all 613 laws, learn the entire New Testament or Old Testament, especially the first five books of the Bible. You have to go, go through your bar mitzvah or your bat mitzvah if you're a female. You have to do all of this and then you can become a Christian. But look what Paul calls them. He calls them dogs. This heresy has been met and dealt with. But in our day, we don't talk about all that you have to do to become a Christian. Instead, we hear a false gospel that is filled with false promises of comfort and ease. We will be told that following Jesus always leads to prosperity and better health and more happiness. That is a gospel that is being proclaimed on most of the um, things that are called Christian TV today. Now, of course, eventually, when we stand before God, all that will be true. But a false gospel in our day is all about having enough faith to become wealthier and healthier and happy right now. It's not easy or unusual, excuse me, to hear phrases like, well, whatever flows, goes as if following Jesus were just a ride down some lazy river. But the path of least resistance makes both men and rivers very crooked. Perhaps you, you have heard a gospel that says God will never let anything bad happen to you. And many people's faith can be on the verge of folding simply because they begin to face hard times. I've seen this in the church. They believe in that promise of instant wealth, health, or happiness. And they think that that is just the good news right there. But the true good news is that Jesus can be with us no matter what we face, no matter good times or bad times. And this is why your pastor is such a stickler about teaching correct doctrine. Because bad theology creates all kinds of difficulties in our lives. It becomes a very harsh taskmaster to us. So what's so evil about the health and wealth theology? Well, what I've seen is that it can force us to lie about our circumstances. It can force us to put on a face when we walk into church that says everything is fine because we don't want all the other people who believe in health and wealth to know that there's anything wrong because it must be because of our lack of faith or sin that we're not experiencing the health and wealth of God. Bad theology can also lead to feelings of guilt if things are not going well. I have seen so many people oppressed and pushed down by pastors who believe in this garbage, who tell them that it's because of your lack of faith and your lack of overcoming that you are in this situation right now. Paul is warning his friends in Philippi, that they should be on guard against bad theology. Or as he put it, the theology of dogs. 
At its core, dog theology says that you can impress God or others with your religious behavior. Think about for a moment how you train a dog. When we got Candy, we had to house train her. And we had to, to teach her, you know, she needs to go outside, she needs to come and let one of us know and we'll take her outside. You know, so we had to teach her, you can't use a living room rug as your toilet. It's, it's not the right place for that. We taught her how to speak. We taught her, well, that's still ongoing. She doesn't speak very well. But she'll sit and she'll roll over and we can put a, a treat on her nose and tell her to wait and she'll wait and we can tell her to take it and she'll snatch that thing right up. And, and we do all kinds of things like that. But what is that if you think about it? If you do all that upon command, you'll get a treat. It's dog theology. It's performance-based. But that's not the gospel. You and I are not dogs. We're created in the imago day, the image of God. So I just encourage you, don't believe the gospel of Satan. Because that's what that is. He wants to slap performance chains around your heart and mind to deaden the true gospel of freedom through Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean freedom to do whatever you want. You still have restrictions that God places upon our life for our own good so that when we live a life before the world that we accurately portray who Jesus is. But it is His love is not based on your performance. His love is based on His performance on the cross. Amen. The second point we find in Philippians chapter 3 is that in verses... Four through seven, Paul explains how dog theology had fooled him. He had been taught that he could impress God by keeping all the Jewish laws, 613 of them. 613. Most of us can't get past 10 or two. <laughs> 613. He thought, Paul thought he could impress God by keeping all the law and earning his salvation. But notice what Paul says about his past life. He said, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, confidence in their own performance, Paul has more. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. The most strictest sect in all of Judaism was the Pharisees. As for zeal, he was so zealous he persecuted the church. For righteousness based on the law, faultless. All 613 laws he followed. But look what he says about it. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. From Paul's past perspective as a Pharisee, this is an impressive list of credentials. But no, these credentials don't mean a thing to Paul. Paul considers, he can, said, I, my whole past was a loss. But this doesn't only apply to the Apostle Paul. As we begin our journey with Jesus, or, or for many of us who have been following Jesus for decades, we are called to leave behind whatever investment we had in that old way of life. Or another way to say it, Jesus is for losers. 
You and I are going to be losers. And when I say that, I mean losers in regard to what we went through in the past. We leave all of that behind. We must lose our old way of thinking and we must lose whatever confidence we have had in our past accomplishments and stride forward into what Jesus has for us. It's not just for the people who are down and out who need the gospel. It's the people who are up and out who also need the gospel. People who have, who have climbed that ladder of success only to find out that they've placed that ladder along the, long, or the wrong wall. Both groups need to know that. You know, some of the hardest people you will ever meet to preach the gospel to are the successful. Because they don't think they need it. They, don't, they, they can't see why they need anything else. Because they have accomplished so much in their life. But the only thing that counts is the new creation that Christ wants to place within you. And that brings us to our third point as we look at this chapter. Listen as Paul continues along that same line in verses 8 and 9. And I'm going to preface it by saying within the Bible, this is my favorite chapter, and these are some of my favorite verses right here. It's my, my life mission or goal, so to speak. So verse 10 says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having any righteousness that is of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. One lesson that Paul had learned and that he shared with others in Philippi and that he shares with us today is that we should lay all or any of our accomplishments on the altar of God. The prophet Isaiah understood this well. He said our righteousness is as, as of filthy rags. The gospel does not care about our achievements or about our failures. The gospel only cares for us and what happens after we desire to follow Jesus. In fact, Paul calls this a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Do we consider knowing Jesus to be the greatest thing about our lives? That's the surpassing worth. This is a man that had the highest degrees you can have in academia. This is a man that came from one of the richest families in Israel. This is a man who was educated at the, the combined Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Oxford, whatever college you think would be the best. He studied there. He had doctorate degrees and all of that. But he, what did he call them? He called them rubbish. In some Bible translations, he called them dung to show exactly what he thought about that. Now maybe you have overcome some significant hardships. You may have survived a difficult childhood and found now a stable and happy life. You may have overcome some type of addiction and found sobriety and peace. You may have, have worked hard to earn an advanced degree from a university or achieve a high level of success in a business world. Maybe, maybe you, that's you. But all of us, no matter what accomplishments we have done in life, 
We need to follow Paul's example. Call everything a loss. He considered everything a loss of this world, except what he could use for the kingdom. Every talent, every skill, every gift that you have wasn't given to enrich you in this life. Everything God has given you was to enrich the kingdom. God gave you those for his benefit, not yours. So when you hold on to them and use them for yourself, just think of what you're doing to the Father heart of God. He gave that for his kingdom because that is where your focus should be. And that's why Paul says all of that is worthless otherwise compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So I'm asking both believers and people here who might be seeking, maybe people listening to the podcast, maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but I'm here to tell you there is a surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. It will surpass whatever difficulties you face, whatever achievements you may have claimed. But I'm also asking those of us who have already decided to follow Jesus, do you know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord this morning? Is this something that has come up in your heart lately? Is this something, or is this something that may have grown kind of dim in your life because something else has clouded it? That is to be the focus of our lives. See, it's much easier for us to settle into to trusting lives of comfortable religious habits instead of actually pursuing Jesus to know him more and more and more. But that's what Jesus calls us to. He calls us into a pursuit of knowing him, knowing him, studying him, wanting to be like him, having his life um, come more and more through us and how we live ours. And that brings me to our fourth point from Philippians chapter 3. There's more to know of Jesus. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his, to his death until somehow to obtain the resurrection from the dead. And these words should amaze us because this is an apostle who has served Jesus and accomplished great things for the kingdom of God. No one in the Bible outside of Jesus did more from the church than Paul. But Paul never proclaimed that as an accolade. He never said, look at me and all I have done. All he said is, I want to know Christ. There was more of Jesus for even an educated man like Paul to get to know. We might be tempted to think, well, if Paul didn't know Christ, then who does? But Paul's point is that our eternal, infinite Lord always beckons us to go further into his goodness and glory. One of the glories of heaven that we have to look forward to is we will forever Look at God and see another facet of him. 
You know, people in the Bible, you have the pictures of heaven and the seraphim and cherubim who surround the throne and they, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. They've been doing this for eternity. They didn't, they're not doing this because they were programmed to do it. They're not just automatons circling the throne, singing, just mindlessly singing praise to a God that they barely know. They are seeing another facet of God's one attribute of holiness and crying out holy anew. Now, if they can be for eternity past to eternity future, crying out holy because they're seeing just one facet of God being more and more exposed to them each and every time they make a circle, think about the glory that awaits you and me. Paul gives a list of things that he still wants to know and experience. He wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. He wants to know the fellowship of sharing suffering with Jesus. He wants to become like Jesus in his death and to somehow obtain a new quality of life both now and in the resurrection. That is why Paul is definitely an example for us because we're all on a journey with Jesus. And because our Lord is infinite, there's no arrival point. We never arrive at perfection. We'll never arrive at a perfect knowledge of Jesus. And that's a glorious thing to look forward to. There is always more of him to know, always more of his love to receive, and always more of his mission to join. That brings us to our fifth and final point from Philippians chapter 3. Jesus had something in mind when he picked the Apostle Paul, and Jesus has something in mind for each and every one of us. Paul said, Not that I have already obtained this or already have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining on toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the price for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So do you see it? Do you, do you see that Paul understood that Jesus had taken hold of him for a reason? That it was Paul's personal mission in life to, to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. We should all mark that simple word in our Bible. And that simple word reveals the fact that God lays on each one of us, or lays hold of each one of us for a reason. Because he has a purpose in mind for all of us. Yes, Jesus had something in mind when he chose you. And Paul knew the secret of his life would be revealed as he followed hard after Jesus. So as we get ready to close this morning, I want us to notice the connection between Christian maturity and discovering our purpose. Part of, of calling yourself or thinking of yourself as a mature Christian is finding and knowing God's purpose for your life. Because that is how you bring Him glory. So the application for us today is simple. Could we point to our own lives as a model of living through tough times? Because I believe that God has called us to reach a joyful 
union with Jesus. One that is living and vibrant, whether in good times or in bad. And that union is shown to the world through our faith and joy. And it will demonstrate to the world that our faith is genuine. And it will be something that they want as well. Becoming like him onto his death. Lord Jesus, I ask, Father, as we enter into our time of communion now, that you will help us appreciate that you did not go through what you went through just to punch our, our train ticket to heaven. You went through what you went through because you have a purpose for us. You went through what you went through because of your great love for us. You went through what you went through because the kingdom of God wants to forcefully advance. And you have chosen the very people who are once in rebellion against you to, have, to be completely and radically changed into ambassadors for the kingdom that they once hated. So Lord God, as we go into our time of remembering your sacrifice for us, let that, those facts just permeate our soul so that we have a new vision and a new sense of what you have done for us and what we still can do for you.